Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. What makes the perfect pitch? What are the magic words that'll make an investor perk up and take note of your idea? I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television, and in this episode, we sat down with Brian Cohen. He's chairman of New York Angels and founding partner of New York Venture Partners. He's one of the most successful angel investors in the tech world. He talks with us about how to approach investors, what angels look for when investing, and how to predict the future of some investments. Everyone knows that if you're starting your own business, the path to funding that business is usually to max out your credit card first, apply for the second credit card, um, ask friends and family for money, and maybe fools, as right. you know friends, you said. Right, friends, family, and fools. There you go. Right. Seek out angel investors, and then maybe one day you graduate to venture capitalists, or those VC firms. Brian Cohen, who is chairman of New York Angels, which is the largest business angel network in the world, is going to be our tour guide for what angel investors want budding entrepreneurs to know. So let's get started. Great. Brian, your first point that you made to me very, very ardently is that most angel investors don't make any money from their investments. They don't know what they're doing. Are they dumb money? I get into a lot of trouble. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the interest I have is to sort of remove the screen, to be able to talk about the reality inside baseball, if you will. Um, angel investors are just rich enough people defined by the SEC to make these crazy investments. Um, they do the best they can. But generally speaking, there's no class that they've taken. There's no schooling for it. It's an opportunity, perhaps, in a local community. And unfortunately, many of those local communities have very few organizations, startups, to invest in. So they invest in them, mm -hmm. and they do their best. Um, I wish there was a clearer process for them to make those decisions. But there's this feel-good part. Like the I'm supposed to, ooh, to use the word philanthropy, we actually joke about the fact that it's philanthropy until the company exits, right? Oh. That's sort of like the joke. Um, but we do want angel investors to look at it more professionally. And unfortunately, they don't. And it creates all sorts of havoc as you go up the funding scale. All right, we'll talk a little bit about the risks of doing that later on, but you're a professional angel investor. You've been doing this for a while. I have. You I, know I, what you're doing. I, I'd like to say I've been doing it since it was called stupid investing. Okay, so it's not stupid investing with you. You've got a methodology for evaluating startup businesses and their founders. What specifically are you looking for? That's always the question everybody wants to know. It's very personal in the case of most angel investors. Some may be looking for a company that they want to work for. Hmm. Strange enough, isn't it? to think that they want to invest in a company that gives them a new lease on life. And in many cases, that's the way angel investors think. They're 55 years old, generally as an average. West Coast, it's a bit younger. And they think that if they invest, they have this chance to actually go work for the company they invest in. It's very personal. Uh, the things I look for, well, so I'm a marketing person. I want to know that you're looking inside the mind of the company that you're trying to sell your products to, your customer. What are they thinking before they're thinking it? That's number one to me. So I ask a lot of very deep questions regarding how well they understand their customer. Seems pretty straightforward, right? But today, most people never get out. They never get to talk to customers. And yet, they should, of course, sound so straightforward. The next thing, of course, you hear um, is, are they a team? And there's not always a team in place, but it's more than a team. I look for teammanship. 
in the urban centers, we put teams together over a beer one night, and not always the kind of relationships are born as a result. So I look for how well do they finish each other's sentences? How happy are they for each other? How supportive? I'm a hugger. I love it when I can see the emotion of the team working together. I want to see them get together. I want to see them talk in warmth to one another because they're going to go through very difficult times. The other thing, on a practical basis, we invest, quiet, to make money. <laughs> so I want to be able to see that the company is scalable. There's lots of businesses that we like to call lifestyle businesses. But we need to get a big exit because we're not really that good at this. I've never met any angel investor that can never pick and choose because we're very early. So I want to be able to find a company that really has an opportunity to scale, scale quickly. And the last thing I look for, and this is the one that's the most controversial of all, it's the business I'm in. I look to see, can they exit? When people ask me what business I'm in, I make it clear I'm in the exit business. And if I'm in the exit business, they're happy about that. So I need to see clearly an exit. Very controversial conversation I have with a lot of people when I'm on panels like this. Because if I don't make money, and if they don't make money, certainly as a result, because we're aligned, it's very important to be aligned, angels stop investing. And that's a problem right now, because they're slowing down. So that's a lot that you're looking for in a short amount of time. What if you can't spend days with this person? You can't really monitor how they do things. You can't observe the emotion there. Uh, is there a shortcut that you can take to see just how much control they have of the situation? It is hard. You're right. Sometimes, as we say, the deal is moving, and it's not about us. It's a train, and we have to see if we can get on board that train. So I'm lucky. I've got my associate, my son, Trace, who is younger and has a better eyesight to see things that I don't see. And my entire family is also a part of that equation. Mm. They all look at the same thing that I look at, and they have a chance to give me their views on those companies. And it's the fabulous part about my life that I have a family that's entrepreneurial and part of my angel investing view of the companies I look for. But I, I do want to get together with them for a breakfast, lunch, and dinner if I can. I want to see how they finish you know, their food. I want to see how they act in a, in a restaurant. I know that sounds trivial to you, but it's not. I don't get a chance to watch them run their business. I don't get a chance to see how they are around people. But that's so critical. And I view those levels of input as an important criteria of making my decisions to initially think of investing. Now, we mentioned earlier that you're the first investor in Pinterest, um, the virtual bulletin board slash social network. Mm. Ben Silberman, who's one of the co-founders and now CEO, uh, he actually wrote the introduction in your book, The Ford, uh, What Every Angel Investor Wants You to Know. Um, he obviously feels a tie with you. What about him convinced you to invest with him or invest in him? So um, this was an extraordinary moment in my life. Um, I grew up reading Spider-Man comic books. I know it sounds very technical, right? Um, but I was a news person first. And in the old days, they used to say, what's news? And the answer used to be whatever Walter Cronkite said it was. For some of you, he was a oh, news back in the day. Back in the day. Thank you. Yes, back in the day. All right. <clears throat> All right. We'll move on from that. Um, and as a journalist, you develop a nose for news, right? You, you know it. You feel it. You smell it. So very, very early on, um, I ended up connecting uh, with this gentleman, uh, Ben Silver, at NYU, and he writes about it in the preface of my book. 
Um, by the way, very thoughtfully and very emotionally, he wrote about it. Um, and when I saw him, he was just some other person standing at a little table holding up you know, an iPhone at the time. And I said, okay, you've got 30 seconds, as rude as that sounds. But that wasn't defined by me. I only had 30 seconds to go to each table. And after 15 seconds, I looked at him and I said, oh my god, my spidey sense is tingling. Mm. Of course, he didn't understand that. Um, but you feel sometimes, and I did, I felt it. I felt like this person was quite remarkable. And then you go back and you find out what they're doing, and you listen closely. But I knew, I knew. In fact, I called my daughter first. And I said, so what do you think of this idea? And she said, oh my god, it's brilliant. So I had a collaborative effort with my family, but I felt something. And certainly at the early stages of the iPhone, anyone building tech that was going to be supporting some of these new initiatives, and it wasn't even Pinterest at the time. It was a different company. It was initially a company called Tote. Um, but it was about Ben. And I was just lucky enough that fate brought us together and that I was able to, to recognize it. So if the idea is impressive and the person is impressive, it's obviously a much easier call. But there are people who decide that they want to be an entrepreneur. They want to start their own business. But they can't figure out their passion. They don't know what they want to do with that business or what kind of business they want to, want to start. Is passion for something, whether it's bulletin boards like Pinterest or uh, subscription beauty samples like Birchbox, is that necessary to build a successful business? All right, controversy number two. Um, no. You don't passion, have passion. Passion, um, I and in fact Steve Blank has written about it over at Columbia. Um, passion blinds you. Um, I think we've used the, the wrong word. Passion doesn't help you figure out how to sell. Passion doesn't figure out how to balance you know, your financials. Passion blinds you to thinking that you can accomplish anything. Uh, it isn't a good enough reason, unless it's a social cause. That's a fine place to have passion. There are moments when you think you need something, but it's grit, it's determination. Maybe it's just a desire to succeed. But the word passion has been overused. And to some people, um, passion is a momentary thing. I'm passionate about it now, but how long are you going to continue to be passionate about it? And unfortunately, it, it doesn't last. Passion can be fleeting. Yes. So if, if you want to be totally pragmatic about it, how do you learn to be an entrepreneur? I know I want to start a business, but I don't really know the first thing about it. Can I learn it? Yes, yes. Um, you can learn how to be an entrepreneur, but it doesn't mean you can learn how to grow a business. It doesn't mean you can learn how to lead. Uh, in the early days, what Chaim was referring to, there were many companies that came to see um, the company that I built with my wife. And that was the best part about it, by the way, being able to be an entrepreneur with your family. I want to point that out. I'm incredibly lucky that I had such a brilliant wife to be able to work with. The context of working with her and being able to see things that I didn't understand were critical to what success we both achieved together. The things you learn along the way aren't always the things that you're going to be good at. And in some cases, you need to step away and hire the right people. That's something you can learn to do. But when people ask me the question specifically, how do they learn to be an entrepreneur? Well, you can start a meetup, right? A simple meetup. Do you have the ability to get people together, to organize, to think through challenges of problems, to coordinate relationships with people? You can go work at a nonprofit and raise money and see if you can do that, since <laughs> money raising is certainly a part of what we are involved with. So you can learn it, and there are lots of entrepreneurial programs at the universities. 
that offer lots of insights and give you a lot of companies that have succeeded and they come in and share their thoughts. So is it nature versus nurture? There's definitely a part of it uh, that I see that a lot of it is nature. Uh, your gregarious nature, your desire to please others, you have no ego. The two things that get in the way of being a successful entrepreneur is greed and ego. If you can get rid of those two things and put them outside the door, you're well on your way to success. If you can look at a problem or a challenge, just logically, and not think that you have to be the smartest person in the room, you're way on your way to success. So yeah, you can learn it, but behaviors get in the way. Um, and you know, the issue I mentioned a moment ago about family, I think that most entrepreneurs that I know are confused about their lives, and unfortunately, they sacrifice their families. Let's talk a little bit about what you do and how you decide to pick which companies to invest in. What's your batting average when it comes to the pitches that you hear and then you agree to invest in? How many do you hear out versus actually you say, okay, I'm committed, I'm going in with you? So uh, I love what I do. I have the most wonderful life. I, I get to connect to you know, all these companies and they pitch me in all these unusual places. <laughs> Strangest uh, place. Uh, urinal once last, last <laughs> year. Right. You asked, I'm sorry. Uh, I was on a city bike and somebody pitched me while I was biking up the, uh, uh, up the west side. Um, so you know, the, 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 the statistics are that we invest in about 2% of the companies we see. Now let's contrast that mm. with VCs, which is about 1%. So you've got to have a lot of flow, a lot of what we simply define as deal flow. And you've got to be able to choose not the best of what you see, because that's unfortunate, because that's what happens. When people have limited deal flow, I don't know why angels aren't part of groups, so they can have the benefit of the wisdom of crowds, where you have the value added of the people around you to offer you input into things you don't understand, or to simply say, that's a stupid idea. Why would you invest in it? So um, it's a hard road. You've got to see, I look at, listen to, or read about at least 200 companies a month. Hmm. But I'm an addict at it, and I love it. I'm so honored to do it. It's, it's amazing. I mean, who else would you know, let a 62-year-old guy you know, into their offices, these young people, and I can hang with them? I mean, when I was a journalist, that used to say press. Now it says money. So you know, that gets me in. But Much also more inviting. A, yes, but also a deep sense of caring. Because even the companies that I don't invest in, I still work as hard as I can to help them. So how many companies do you need to invest in to find one that actually pays off, that returns something? Well, you know, the average angel investor invests in one company, which is kind of weird, right? Uh, there's about 250 active angel investors in the United States. Um, so I look at, you know, all those companies. Um, I tend to um, invest in those that uh, have the best deal terms. I tend to invest in those companies that have um, the best opportunities for those returns on investment. I look for 20 times my return on an investment in a company. And that usually makes me Darth Vader. Because when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, they say, I'm sorry, but I don't think I'm going to have a company that's going to return 20 times. And the reason I have to do that is because all the others are going to die. Or they'll just be zombie companies, which is really horrible when they don't die. You want them to go out of business. Um, because they keep calling you thinking that there's some hope, <laughs> right? You know, I, I say there's a lot of entrepreneurs living on hopium. Mm. Um, uh, and it is. It's like a drug. And I say in graduate school, they teach you how to start a company, but they never, ever teach you 
at a stoplight. There's no book that says, all right, jigs up, let's just move on.org. And many of these young people don't have a sense uh, that the time that they're spending is so precious. Well, there's also a lot of angel investors who continue to give money. You talk about philanthropy, and they continue to plow money into something that may not be viable. If, if you're a young entrepreneur and you kind of see that, oh, this guy who has agreed to invest in me doesn't really know what he's doing and this is his only investment, should you say no to that person? I mean, what's the risk of saying, it's of saying yes? It's, it's certainly very difficult to say no to the money you need to keep the lights on, right? So you really can't. Uh, but you really should be always looking. I don't call it money raising. I call it investor raising to your point. Mm -hmm. You're looking for the best investors that are going to help you along the way. So you've got to take it. Uh, but I would, I would be, when I'm looking at companies who invested and I see that the entrepreneur isn't really focused on trying to find the best investors, I kind of shy away a little bit too because they're not being strategic with their thinking and it's planning. It's a red flag. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of dumb money, a lot of really dumb money. And I think the dumb money does it injustice to the entrepreneur. I spoke at Cornell um, uh, many years ago, and I looked at the audience of young entrepreneurs, and I asked, are we being too nice to you? And there was a long silence in the room, and they said, yeah, you are. You're not treating us like professionals. You're not treating us like adults. You're looking at us and saying, you're such a nice entrepreneur. Your mother mm. should be so proud of you. And, and that kind of attitude, I think, works against what entrepreneurs really want from us, which is the kind of hard, Hard knocks. I was going to start an organization years ago uh, called the Devil's Advocate Group, where a great entrepreneur starting their company can come in and get professionally beaten up. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful, right? Just to sharpen their sword. But there's such a sensitivity to it. There's no crying in entrepreneurship. But there's this sort of weirdness about if you're being um, critical. I have more emails from more of these companies that I have been direct with that I've said, don't do that which no one will say. Mm -hmm. And they come back to me and said, you saved me a year of my life by being you know, that open and direct with me. Now, it's a big chance you take, right? Because they can come back and say, gotcha. And actually, I want them to. I want them to succeed in spite of what was my original input. But there's far too many young people starting companies and wasting their lives and wasting their time, preciously, that they can go on to something else, right, and move on. As an angel investor, though, you don't actually sit on the board of your portfolio companies, right? I mean, how, how do you make your influence felt? How do you leverage that influence? So angel investors coming right after friends, family, and fools um, <laughs> are the first people who, if the terms are written that there is a board of directors, which I think is like training wheels for startups, uh, there's so much to share with you. The early stage of a company is the most critical time how you define the term sheet, how you define your valuation, how you define your relationship with a board, if you even have a board. And I called it training wheels because training wheels sets up governance, a process and a procedure to watch over the organization. And if you don't have that, you're kind of like driving without a map or there's no critical overview. And if you have that early development of a board, you'll have a better opportunity of going into the next phase, which is a series A. In the early stage, angel investors do things quickly, and entrepreneurs do things quickly. And that's because of accelerators and all the incubators. They're just pushing the companies through. And it's a game of just numbers. And it's very sad to me, because it's all about just get up there on stage and see if you can raise money. They all do it. 500 startups, they all involved in it. 
but it's a game. And I don't like seeing it because it's who's going to make the money, who's going to get the hit. And I think we need to rethink that because a lot of this important money is going nowhere and is being wasted. And I think a lot of that money can be better spent if better companies are curated uh, and people are more thoughtful about those investments. And it all comes down to how they set up the company in the early stages, as you Very said. Very much. Um, let's jump ahead then. What's the ideal form of exiting your investment for, the, for those that do well? Well, the reality is everybody, <laughs> when I ask the question, what, what kind of exit are you going to have? It's an IPO. Well, of course, we all know that's you know, a dream. Oh, yeah. Um, 1% of the VC companies, I guess, you know, go, go public, some very low number. The reality is, is that the companies are M&A'd out. Um, and the average M&A is under, still under $100 million, which is sad because much like I said, angel investors don't make money, which surprises a lot of people because everybody thinks, you know, oh my God, they're angel investors. They, they must be making a lot of money. I travel the world looking for angel investors who's ever made money, ever, ever made money, over money of their entire investment. I don't find very many. And I contrast that at the same time with venture capitalists who, if you look at the last 10 years, also have measly returns. 6% of venture capitalists return 95% of the money. So it's even hard for them to figure out how to make money. Um, I, uh, I lament that, and I, I, I wish there was more of a coordinated effort. Here in New York City, let me just speak for New York, if I may, mm. just for a moment. Um, I'm a big hugger, and New York City is a big hugging community. It's one giant incubator. I had an office for 25 years out in Silicon Valley. It's so, so totally different. All of you who are entrepreneurs here, I will stay here tonight for as long as necessary to listen to everyone's pitch, to everyone's input, the best I can. And there are hundreds of us in New York who make ourselves available. I have many of my friends here from the New York Angels and other friends of mine who are also associates of mine who also love to be angels. And we're all here for you. So New York is a giant incubator that supports every entrepreneur's dream. Uh, and we want to be here you know, to support it going forward, too. All right, so take advantage of that after this conversation. Um, I want to pivot a little bit and broaden out our, our scope here. When you look at the stock market right now and you see how Google, or Alphabet as it's known now, or Apple or Microsoft, how they're performing, near or at record highs, obviously the bull market is pretty old right now um, and it's still going on. Yeah, longest ever. Where are we in the angel investing cycle? So I travel the world and I listen to angels uh, from near and far. Um, because angels aren't making money, they stop. They just simply say enough. Um, this isn't as opportunistic as I thought it was going to be. Um, if they're not professional about it, they simply say, whatever money I had, I've, I've, I've invested it. It's, it's, it's working. And it does take um, you know, six to 10 years for an average exit. It's getting even longer now. Uh, for that to happen. Um, it's, a, it's a real big you know, challenge uh, for angel investors. But since they're not making money, what are they doing? They're slowing down. I call it angel exhaustion. Uh, and if angels slow down, uh, that slows down the entire rate of, of companies that are moving into the next level of, mm. of, of funding mm -hmm. for the venture capitalists. Now, some may say that's fine. Um, there are too many companies that have been poorly funded. And that's the other point I made before. That's true. Uh, there used to be the Series A crunch concept. Well, that was only because so many companies that were funded by angels should never have been funded. Uh, there's, always, there's always money after the angels have put the money in, taken the first big risk for a venture firm to say, ah, great, now they've got traction. Because angel investors, where I love to be, are on the edge, the early edge, pre-revenue. That's the scariest time to do it. 
but angels are slowing down. Uh, they just aren't making money. And many of them are realizing, hey, I made all this money in the stock market, I'm making money in real estate, this angel thing. And they also find out it takes too much time to really do right. No one wants to wait six to 10 years. Well, it's, yes, no one wants to wait six to 10 years <clears throat> if you're older. Um, there's always a sensitivity of that. That's why you bring your family into it as well, you know, so they can reap the benefit, or my grandkid, uh, to reap the benefit of it. Uh, but, you know, the angels are simply saying, um, I've had enough. Now, at the New York Angels, um, we really pride ourselves uh, on due diligence, not DUE diligence, but DO diligence. We look for the reasons to invest. We do it. Due diligence is reasons not to invest. So I just want to point out that I'm incredibly proud of running the Angels, New York Angels, for so many years and having so many colleagues that are as committed to being a professional level angel investor um, that we all dream we, we can be. But they are generally retired. Mm. They generally have the time to do it and, and want to really make a difference to those companies. You asked a question before about not being on boards. Um, we tend to be the uh, primary advisor that helps them reach customers open doors. It's really frustrating for an angel investor who comes in and starts thinking that they can actually have an, have an effect on the company, but they're only there through short Polaroid moments in time. Well, actually, remember Polaroid? All right. Um, that was a camera instant, instant picture. Uh, but they're not there during the video time. And it becomes annoying to the founder when the angel investor you know, says, listen, I put all this money and I've invested in you. Please, I want to be a help. And they become more annoying than anything. I'm going to make sure I comment on that. So the smartest angel investors know to keep a hands-off approach to the company until they call and say, here's what I need. And they say, yep, I'm here for you. Is there a relationship between the angel investing cycle, the VC cycle, and the traditional business cycle overall? I have to believe there is. Uh, to, you know, we're, we are, we're early funders in the start up of an idea uh, before any level of execution. You're, you know, you always ask, people always ask the question, what's next, right? So there's some part of us looking first over the proverbial fence, mm -hmm. you know, to find it. Uh, and we scour, at least I do, uh, looking for those kinds of companies. Uh, but they're all over the place. I never dreamed uh, that my best, one of my best investments would be men's underwear, right? Um, that there was this new cycle for men's fashion, you know, that, you know, New York metrosexual, you know, desire to have better fitting underwear. Um, uh, but I had that opportunity because we have an angel who's extraordinary in the men's fashion area. Um, cycles are interesting because, it, again, it's all about where's the money going. And um, we tend to spot it first as angel investors. We talked about AI, uh, and I know we'll touch on that in mm -hmm. a moment. Okay, Let's, before we get to that though, you mentioned how New York Angels, they're very professional, they know what they're doing. But most angel investors, especially those that might not be in a populated area like New York or Silicon Valley, don't. They're kind of on their own. So I'd like you to compare and contrast the angel investing scene here in New York versus, say, Boston or Austin, the, the other places where everyone's trying to incubate this, this Silicon Alley, Silicon Valley type right. Uh, right. environment. So it is a rainforest. Everything that I've seen is it takes time. Um, and yes, there's always the luck factor. Uh, New York. Uh, is relatively new. It's always this game. Are we? How do we compare to Silicon Valley? And mm -hmm. they've been at it certainly for a long time. Our ecosystem, as we always call it, uh, is still young uh, and maturing. And we're always expecting the next billion-dollar exit, and that makes us, you know, amazing. We're, we're, you know, 
judged on that billion dollar unicorn thing. But small communities, uh, it's kind of, I get it. I would go to a small community even upstate. I wanted New York to sort of get together. Uh, and I, they, they, they put a you know, big sign on their door when I would, when I would knock on it, it says, do not enter from New York. Uh, because if we let their entrepreneurs know that New York City exists, they'll move here. Mm -hmm. that, do you get it? They don't want to lose their entrepreneurs in small town America. Um, and I get that. Uh, but what's sad is that the small number of angel investors that are there are forced to some degree because they live in the community and these companies need, they need funding. And they kind of confuse economic development with strict professional angel investing. I get it. You know, they live in the community. These are startups. They want to be supportive. And there's all sorts of different types of angel investors, as we said, philanthropic angel investors. There's mentor angel investors where you can't say no because you've been helping this young company. So here, take all my money, take my heart. You know, I'll help you the best I can. Um, I wish it wasn't. So they, so they choose the best companies they can in their communities, which isn't always that company which should be chosen. But you know, it's extra money. They have it. Why not do it? Uh, maybe. Because there's always that, you know, is it a dollar and a dream on the lottery? I was just going to say, it's like the lottery. Right, it's a bit of a dream thing. So you want to be helpful. And along the way, the angel investors cheered mm. for doing such a thing. That's so nice of you to help those young people. You know, you're, you're investing in them. What do they do again? Right. So it's, it's, a, it's a weird kind of relationship. But a lot of it is based on what my friend David Rose wrote. Um, it's fun. It's fun. You get to meet all kinds of interesting people. You do, and you get thanked for it. Well, we've got a businessman, a self-proclaimed deal-maker, sitting in the Oval Office as our president. Does that mindset help or hurt entrepreneurship on the ground? Does it encourage it? Is, is that a good thing for, for entrepreneurship? Um, is my eye twitching after you mention that? <laughs> uh, so, so, God. Uh, <laughs> So Michael Bloomberg, again, speaking for New York, was the greatest champion New York has ever had for entrepreneurship. He used to have us come to uh, parties uh, at, at, uh, at his, well, he actually didn't live there at Gracie Mansion. But we went there, and he put the glasses on from Warby. He would try out all the products. He was really one of us. He felt and understood the, 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 the journey of entrepreneurship, because he was one, you know, built quite a company. Um, Entrepreneurs just want government to stay out of the way. Mm. That's generally the response that we offer when anybody asks, how can we help you? I'm from the government. We're here to help you. We say, just leave us alone. Just, go over just, there. Yeah. Just don't, don't go into any of my pants pockets. Don't tell me what I should be doing. Just let me do it myself. So um, here's a surprising factoid, though. And I love sharing sort of the Freakonomics of this. Uh, entrepreneurship has actually been decreasing according to the Kaufman Report. Who would ever have imagined that in America? Decreasing. Why is that? So here's the other factoid. Entrepreneurship is actually a bunch of rich kids that are starting companies because they have safety nets. Some of you must know that. To be able to go off and to be a year or two not making money, um, raising some or trying your best, uh, really means you've got to have rich parents who are helping fund all of this. When, in, when I go into WeWorks, I actually knock on some doors. I say, is your mother paying for this? your father paying for this? <laughs> Do they um, answer you honestly? Yes, yes. A lot of families you know, who say go off and 
great. There's no lease involved? Great, do it. I'll, I'll, I'll help you do it. Um, so, you know, the entrepreneur environment um, is made up of a lot of rich kids uh, who have lots of great big safety nets supporting them. And the other thing about entrepreneurship is that there isn't enough of the entrepreneurs that do a survey of the business that they're going into to know that there are 12 other companies doing it uh, and that they have no chance of success. But they do it, this is the joke, ready? So they can get a date on a Friday night. It has gotten so socially serious that if you don't have a startup, you can't get a date. All right, fine. I'm sorry, what was your elevator pitch again? Right, got it. You know, some people even called it, you know, a bedroom pitch. Is it good enough? Great. Well, okay, well on that note, <laughs> speaking of pitches, um, what specific business model is in vogue right now? What's trendy right now? What, what do you hear the most of if someone were to step into an elevator with you, you're like, oh, not again. Let's see, who came up to me when I walked in here? I guess, <laughs> I guess everybody wants to get back on the AI track. AI has always been you know, part of the conversation for a long time, but now it's become really vogue. Data scientists, my God, you, get a, you can get a job as a data scientist just immediately at a you know, quarter million dollars a year if you're really a great data scientist. Um, so it is a lot of AI, there's mm. no question. Machine learning, um, is, it's everywhere and it will continue to be everywhere for a long time. Is it real? You know, that's always that question. Is, is it really AI? Um, I think AI is when you're really doing a lot of number crunching, a lot of data analysis, and many people write algorithms, and they think that if they write an algorithm and it looks at data, and they examine a little of this and a little of that, they're actually doing AI, but they're not. So AI is huge, and it continues to grow. But it's the next shiny thing, mm -hmm. and again, um, because it's so hard to pick and choose, uh, people just invest in it because they can. There's all these new funds. I don't believe in funds. Um, I think angel investing is a contact sport. I want a hug, I want to touch, I want to get close to the entrepreneur. That's the best part about it, I want to get to know you. But there's this rise of funds where people don't necessarily think they have the time, and I get it, uh, but they lose out on so much by putting money into a fund, and funds generally have to invest. And funds generally are slippery slopes. Because the LPs, the LPs are the people who fund the fund, say, so what did you invest in this year? And if they come back and said, well, we've only invested in those two companies, well, they're not happy about that because they think they didn't work hard enough to invest in all these other companies. So they end up investing in more companies than they actually should. And uh, people follow the trend, and if AI is hot right now, they correct. just crowd into that. I, I want to be in that, I want a piece of that. And they do it. I mean, it's the behavior part. I'm a behavioralist, so I love watching. I love trying to figure out why people are doing what they're doing and figure out how to do it better. But behaviors are just bad behaviors and it's hard to change that. I love it at the Angels because, um, so I had the opportunity of going over to Israel with the Bloomberg delegation the first time in the early days of the Technion uh, Cornell Tech relationship. Um, and in Israel, everybody always asks me the question, why, why do they seem to be doing so well? What, what are they doing there? How, how do they make it happen? Uh, and the fact is, they're just really hard on each other. Mm. They are really challenging on each other. They don't let anything get through. They're annoyingly mean in some cases about ideas. Not people, not people, but ideas. They push back a lot. Oh, enormous amount. And even when I go to the accelerators here in New York, I say, do you guys challenge each other? No, 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 we, we support one another. We're just this big cheerleading you know, group. 
we tell everybody they're going to be great and wonderful and we have music playing at their demo day. Is this distinctly American? No. I spoke in Italy last year and it's, it's worse, uh, the problems there, um, uh, where you can't, you can't succeed in Italy and be, you know, uh, appreciated because everybody asks why you, you know, who did you know, um, what did you do with your money, and if you fail there, um, you are told every day you're a failure. So you can't win and you can't lose. Mm. So they actually have real issues over uh, in those countries. That's a whole different kind of problem. Whole different kind of problem. Um, and so they end up moving to, uh, right now, I, I always say, where's the largest number of Parisian startups? London. Um, because the tax breaks and the relationships that the government has in supporting a lot of these entrepreneurs, it's not socialist. Um, and that's, that's a bit of a problem there. Well, it's going to be a problem also with Brexit. I guess um, Brexit's going to create challenges for them. I'm not sure. I guess they're negotiating now. They're negotiating now, but we're talking about people who aren't even sure of their legal status in the UK in two years' time. Yes. I mean, the immigration issue in America, I think you all know, uh, has been a boon. The, the immigration support that we've had um, under Obama um, has been fabulous uh, so that we've had all these wonderful talent people coming to America to support these startups. Now, they just met with that guy in the Oval Office, Mr. T. Um, uh, and, um, you know, you saw the pictures come out of that, right? They had all those photos. The they Technology all, Summit, yes. Technology Summit, Where they all look so depressed. Where many CEOs didn't even want to confirm that they were attending. That's right. Oh my God, it was such amazing. It was so amazing to see it. But we need, we need you know, good support for a lot of talented people to come to America. We talked about artificial intelligence. Um, I think about some of the other trends or areas that uh, have been hot, whether it's wearable devices, virtual oh, reality, augmented IOT. reality, IoT, Internet of Things, what media. What happened to IoT? That exactly. <laughs> right. That's gone? That it's over? I, I don't hear about it anymore. It's just like, bye. So that was then. Yeah. AI is now. What's next? What's going to be the next frontier? So we're always asked that, um, and we try and use our, our crystal ball. Uh, is it cars, mobility? Well, we're kind of like already jumped on that bandwagon. We seem to have that sort of kind of solved. Uh, biomechanics. Ah, well, biomechanics. I think that's interesting. You know, brain communication to devices or extensions um, of our own bodies. So it's not robots, which, of course, is a possibility, uh, and that's been a possibility for a long time, but mm -hmm. maybe it's man-made becoming robots. Um, what, was it on, what is it on Star Trek? Uh, the Borg, that you know, we're all going to start adding pieces to our bodies. I actually think that, and I've asked you know my team uh, and New York Venture Partners uh, to go out and really take a closer look at that. Uh, we want life extension, again behaviors. So if you ask yourself about Larry Ellison and other people like Larry, they're getting older and they're not happy about that, right? Ray Kurzweil, you all know about the singularity, right? Um, he's not happy growing older. We're not, and so we want to live longer. So we want to replace body parts. So I think that is going to, that is going to become a, a, a big opportunity. And the aging of America. You know, mm. The fastest growing populace in America are centenarians. That's amazing. Uh, we're all just living longer. We want to continue to live longer and have good quality of life. So that's where I'm looking. And I have a feeling now that I've said that, everybody's going to start looking at it. So, and then all of a sudden, the funds are going to start. Um, we all take pills now from companies like Elysium. You know, replace your RNA, DNA. You know, in an easy pill. 
you know, where is science fiction anymore? There isn't. Mm -hmm. There's no more science fiction. Um, everything that seems to be science fiction, we're all sort of like doing. Well, 20 years about. ago, you were involved in the man versus machine chess match, right? Of Gary Kasparov versus yes. Deep Blue. Yes, and very much involved. Now we're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about robots taking over. Where do you see companies like IBM? Uh, what do you? What kind of role do you see for these kinds of traditional companies that were once at the forefront, but you know are now offering computer services as? as their main contribution? Well, so I had the opportunity of working with IBM as their counsel for uh, more than a decade. And within that, within that time, I saw IBM go from being an extraordinary company to almost wanting to sell off its divisions, uh, to sort of wishing uh, that they could also see the future better. Mm -hmm. And they tried their best to become a, um, a service company. Um, but they missed the boat, you know, the Amazons, you know, the, the, the cloud services. Um, they're trying their best. They always had the deep tech uh, and the deep research experience uh, to exploit a lot of what now Watson is, right? You've all seen the commercials for Watson. Um, but the fact is Microsoft and companies like Microsoft um, and Google are offering those services for free, right? So how can a company compete against, uh, like IBM, in a traditional model sense where you charge for those types of things um, and don't have the advertising business or another business to offset it that's doing well, how do they end up you know, providing that service and charge for it? So um, much like when I went to a university, uh, grad school, I went to Boston University, and they asked me to come in and talk to them about how do they create a culture um, of entrepreneurship on their campus. Uh, one of the questions I asked all the deans at this luncheon I spoke at is, how do you teach your students for a future you can't describe? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you do that? And the same thing that every company in the world is asking the same question. How do we grow our company for a future we can't even figure out? So iteration, I like to say, is the new form of innovation. If a company isn't iterating constantly, working towards little steps, getting to big steps, um, they're going to lose. And we see it. What is, what's left of the S&P now? Um, 25 companies, uh, I think, of the companies that were around 35 years ago are still in the S&P. Um, the Dow, you mean? Um, no, the S&P. The S&P 500? S&P 500. Very few. They're, they're dropping off so quickly. Oh, I they're, see. The replacement. And the replacement. Yeah. That's right. You talk about IPOs. Uh, 2009, um, there were, I think, 1,600 IPOs. Last year, there was, what, maybe 16 mm. last year? So innovation, companies growing up and, and finding they can raise money in the markets is getting limited. Um, it's a, it's a scary universe out there for a lot, of these, a lot of these companies. Now, we wish that these companies that aren't innovating as well would buy, now we're talking, would buy the companies that we're investing in, right? Now we come full circle. Oh, it would be fabulous. Andreessen is always talking about it. Um, but they're not buying these companies. Uh, for whatever reason, they think that they're going to try and innovate their way into mm. their futures. We hope. Certainly, you know, it's the, it's the fuel that we require to have an exit. Because remember, I'm in the exit business. And we hope that these big companies will finally realize that they need to buy a lot of this innovation. Um, but even in that case, again, so much to share. Many of these companies that they're buying, they're buying dirt cheap through aqua hires, where they buy the talent, but they don't buy the assets. And that means that, again, the investors lose. Um, and it's happening a lot more. Mm. Uh, and that's unfortunate. So they're just not willing to buy these companies at the, val at the fair value that they, that, they really, that they really have. 
It's a very unusual investment class. Um, venture capital is under attack. We all think crowdfunding is going to make a major uh, difference there. It hasn't. Uh, if, we th if we know VCs don't do well and angels don't do well, how do you think crowdfunding is going to do, right? It's a bit of a, a bloodbath out there for that. Um, but we still do it. We still believe in angel investing. Um, New York Angels uh, will have its record year this year uh, in investing. Mm -hmm. um, we're getting more and more great, great company founders coming to us. Uh, and we're getting smarter and smarter and smarter. So we're committed uh, to being the finest, most professional angel group in the country. All right. Our thanks to Brian Cohen of New York Angels. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.